This is another episode of Chris and Rick Talk Guitars. This is Chris over here. Hello. I'm Rick. And Chris had a great title for this episode. Chris, what was it again? Oh, the title is Gibson and Fender, The Dark Era. Yeah. Which is the CBS and the Norlin eras, respectively. Yeah. Notorious eras for guitars. Well, why don't you get us started on, like... Uh, well, I, I think to start off, our beef with people who complain about these eras is, yes, we all know the change that occurred and the bean counter mentality that overtook these companies, but there are a lot of people out there that just write all the instruments off from this these eras, right? Like, oh, don't buy anything from a 70s you know, Fender or Gibson. They suck, right? Right. Which I believe, you know, people are starting to come around and starting to see the value and, you know, the quality of these instruments. Yeah. But still, you'll run into a lot of times, you know, don't buy a 70s Fender guitar. The quality is horrible. Yeah. Or, you know, the same with Gibson. And for Fender, I, I believe it was December of 1965 is when yeah. Leo Fender sold to the Columbia Broadcasting, yeah. whatever the fuck they're called, <laughs> the CBS. And so 66 would have marked the first year of yeah. CBS era right. for those instruments. And, you know, anybody who's ever played some 66 instruments knows that they're pretty fucking great. Yeah, I know. And um, Norland, I believe that was 1970, yeah. I think. is. When and some people actually refer to, they think it goes back to when McCarty quit in 66 and that started that started the ball rolling but i think right. everything i've read is like 70 70 to 80 as far as the companies take exactly the, yeah. the large company 70 to 83 was the norland era kind of no you're you're right and, and what so what are we talking about i mean well we're talking about basically the fact that there are great guitars from those, oh yeah from that era those eras of guitars from Fender and Gibson. I mean... Absolutely. I think what I take issue with is kind of the statement that, you know, don't buy an instrument from that era. Right. The quality is bad. Yeah. You know, they have poor quality control during that era. Because to me, quality control is something that you can measure. It's measurable. Yeah. You have to be able to point to an instrument and say, this, look at this. This yeah. is horrible. This is bad quality. Like, take Gibson. Gibson, at some point during this time went to three-piece maple necks yep. and it's completely valid to say you know on a, on a gibson les paul i do not like three-piece maple necks i prefer one-piece mahogany and that's completely valued but you can't say that three-piece maple neck is a quality issue. right like it's it's lesser quality yeah right it's just how, how is it implemented yeah. is it good is the angle of the neck correct exactly is you know the pitch of the headstock correct is everything line up and it, and it plays great because the, the, those necks, the three-piece maple necks, are very high quality on yeah. a lot of them. Yeah, and uh, like the volute, like people bitched about the volute too, which is essentially an engineering answer to a pro the problem of broken headstocks on these right. Gibson, which is notorious for Gibson guitars, right? Because the angle of the... It, it is notorious, but that's another thing, and I would just jump to an A-side really quickly, is <laughs> Go for it. that um, the, the, the broken headstock is an issue. That's, there's, a, you know, there's an engineering problem. There's a, like a, a physical reason that this happens, right. but it's completely overblown on the Internet. If you talk to... You'll hear people that say, don't buy a Gibson. Those headstocks fall off right, if you right, look at them. Right, exactly. It's like, no, you have to drop them. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, you, have you have to, to drop them in a, in, a, in a way they have to fall over and hit a certain way, and they'll break. Exactly. Because there's, exactly. it's a weak stress point yeah. in that guitar. I mean, I've been around Gibson guitars 
a thousand years, I think, yeah. going this this, <laughs> well, this November. <laughs> but I've seen like the ratio to broken headstock guitars is about what you would think they would be. There's there's yeah. a number of them that, but it's not like every third guitar has a broken headstock. No, it is a weak point and something to be made aware of. But you'll see that the most desirable Gibson by far is the '50 style that has the weak point. I exactly. mean, the, the volute yeah. didn't fly, as right. you were saying. Right. A lot of people didn't dig it, and it, it did help out in in a you know a specific problem that it chose to address. And like and you it, say, I mean, maybe a sticker on the case that says "Don't drop your guitar." But that, that would be better be way to go. I think it would. Just you know, keep away from drummer. <laughs> keep away from the drummer. So. That that's that's one area. Let's let's talk about Fender for okay, first, and then we'll sure. jump back to Gibson. Sure. Fender, the things that they did that were so looked down upon were probably the three bolt neck is, yep. a, is a big one. The three yep. bolt neck plate. Actually, somebody sat down and thought that out. There was an engineer that sat down and thought that out, and it introduced the micro tilt as a design. It was great. It was it was completely. There was nothing wrong with that design at all. It did exactly what the designer wanted. Uh The problem arose, and there were specific problems, is the people cutting the bodies and Uh, making a sloppy sloppy neck pocket, which is this is one of the things you can point to in a Fender guitar and say, this is horrible quality control right here. Why is there a gap on each side of this neck? And with a three-bolt system, or even a four-bolt system, if you have enough gap there, you're going to have stability problems. You're going to be able to move that neck. And so that is one of the things that you can point to. And my point and the point of this episode is how many in that exactly. era do you find? You will find them, yeah, but not to the extent that people would have you believe. Exactly. And I have... A, a 70s Strat, and it's got the three-bolt neck, and I've never... And, and the pocket, I think, as I recall, it's pretty tight. Yeah. You've seen that guitar. It's an Antigua. And yeah, I've never had tuning problems with that guitar, or, or felt like the, the neck was not stabilized less... Or aligned. Be, you didn't right, or aligned. No, I haven't. <laughs> All right. And so... And, and again, you and I have both uh, played a bunch of 70s strats that have come through guitar shops that we frequent all the time and we've played some great great strats from those eras you know and exactly to your point you know if you want to talk about preference that's one thing but if you want to talk about quality okay let's take this guitar and look at it and see and measure quality right rather than just say oh well i don't like three three bolt necks because but uh, you know like to your point people have said oh yeah three bolt necks they won't stay in tune like four bolt necks or something or you know there's some issue right and which is complete BS. It's, it's like no. It's physically impossible. Yeah. It's the neck pocket. It comes down to there. And another thing in the seventies that, you know, kind of popped up late sixties and seventies is the finishes changed. They yeah. got a lot thicker. It was like a polyester or right. poly some poly based finish. And that's something where, you know, it's valid for someone to say, I don't like those really thick finishes. I happen to not mind them on fenders because w- what we should say here is I'm gonna have a bias because of my nostalgic factor. With all old instruments, there's a nostalgia factor. So when I started playing guitar, these were the guitars that were available. I would go into the music store and I would just go nuts over. Right. So for me, a Fender that has a thicker finish doesn't really bother me for that reason because it feels... Like it feels like a Fender should because that's what I you know learned on yep. and what I what was available. Well, I mean, I'm from you. We're the same age, so I I, res, I totally relate to the fact of seeing these guitars from our era as new guitars, right? With, even with the thick finishes and all that other stuff. So same on the, on the neck, same same thing. Um, and it, it's, I'm the same way. It doesn't bother me either. Like you know, 
I, I love the old nitrocellulose finishes on oh, yeah, old guitars. They're beautiful, and the way they age and crack and is awesome and stuff. Yeah. But, but, you know, I'll take the thousand coats of polyurethane <laughs> on my Antigua any day. My bowling ball. My bowling ball. Oh, the thing I was going to point oh. out is another personal point for a guitar that a lot of people poo-poo is the seven and a quarter radius on the necks, oh, which right. the Fender eventually upgraded on all the like the standard. Right. I think that for me personally, a Fender with a seven and a quarter radius is perfect. That feels so right to me. That feels like a Fender should feel. Yeah. So you know that is not any sort of a flaw exactly. that needed to be fixed. But I understand players' tastes have changed. And now I think if you pulled a number of players, they're going to say, I need a flatter fretboard so I can do the blues. <laughs> so um, Then get your Valley Arts guitar. But that, again, you know. that is not quality. That is Exactly. That's preference. Exactly. exactly. And so, it, yeah. Like, yeah. Um, citing, like, neck radius or any of this other stuff as, like, quality issues, yeah, is dumb. It's it's dumb. It's not... It's, it's a preference of a player. And like you're saying, it's like... We talk about this all the time where, you know, people will rail on, on, on a telly or a, or a Strat for things that are indicative of that particular guitar, right? It's like right. you buy a Strat for a certain reason. It's got a certain neck radius. It's got three pickup configuration. It, this is what the guitar is. So if you like a Strat, get a Strat. But right. don't get a Strat and then go, you know, I had my tech, you know, uh, change the radius on the fretboard. to. I mean, I, you can do this. But why not just go get a different different guitar that does what you want it to do, you know? Rather than putting humbuckers in your Strat and flattening the neck radius, why don't you go get a guitar that... Right, and there's plenty available. And jumping back really briefly to the three-bolt neck system, it's really interesting to note that when um, Leo Fender left Fender, he started, you know, first the Music Man and then the G&L companies, and he used a three-bolt system. No. Yeah, and... My interesting point that I was getting to <laughs> is that in 1997, the company GNL at the time decided to change to a four bolt system because of people's perceptions oh that the three bolt was bad. So, I mean, there's all these Music Man and GNL guitars with three bolt necks, and they're great, and there's they nobody are. complaining about Comanche. it, but the stigma of the three See, bolt how neck. stupid. Right. And, you know, if it's good enough for Leo, it's good enough for me, man. Yeah. Three bolts are good enough for Leo. Damn it. Fender. You mean so they cave to the pressure. That sucks, man. Yeah, that does suck. Three let's, bolt forever. Let's let's hop over to Gibson. No, for let's a hop moment, over to Gibson. We? So you whatever were, was there, they're dark. They're they're dark like points that people. Well, you like. were talking about weight, especially for Les Pauls and stuff. Yes. And you were talking. You you had an interesting point about the average weight from the the golden era versus the Norland era. And you said it was pretty marginal, really, well, like a pound. It's, it's a pound, and a pound is a lot in a guitar. Yeah, that's but cool. it's it's not as much as, as you would think. And yes, it's it's true that during this, you know, the 70s, primarily, the weights of the guitars went up considerably. They were yeah. using you know heavier wood. Yeah. And a couple of things to note about that is during that time, you know, the thought, as far as tone went, is that heavier guitars provided more sustain and were better. They were actually high-end boutique companies like Kramer and whatnot, like the early Kramer, not the, the later bolt-on Kramer. The 20-pound Kramer. But like the, the Travis Bean and Kramer, where they, they specifically sought wood that was heavy to make heavy guitars oh because gosh. of the sustain factor. So that may have been part of it, but 
there there are a lot of heavy guitars in there, you know, yeah. and and everybody has to choose for themselves how much weight can you take. Sure. I have I have eleven pound Les Paul over there, and that's about you know I don't have any problems with that guitar. I've done two hour plus rehearsals, and it's yeah. never bothered me. But everybody, I think, probably has the limit that, okay, this guitar speaks to me, but, you know, at 14 pounds, it's like myelin. I don't know. At 14 pounds, is a heavy guitar. Yeah, and, and yeah, and I understand, like, to some degree that. But, again, we've talked about this. It's like a Les Paul, in general, is a heavy guitar, right? It's a construction It's a big, it's style. A big hunk of mahogany, right. and it's a big... It's, it's just the construction style of that guitar, it's going to be a heavy guitar. And so if you right. like a Les Paul... Yeah, maybe you can find one that's some kind of light. But for me, it's like, I don't know. I, I guess I'm just not that picky in terms of... I mean, yeah, I wouldn't want to strap on this 20-pound guitar and have to play it for three hours a night. But right. um, a Les Paul is a heavy guitar. I know that going into it, right? So, right. Yeah, but, but getting back to the, the weight thing that we're talking about now, but right. I'm trying to, before I lose these numbers, <laughs> some research I did online, I uh -huh. found one of the sources of the research was the Beauty of the Burst book, which averaged... Right. A bunch of weights from a number of the actual 59 and 60 bursts and they averaged out to just under nine pounds it was like in the in the mid to high eight uh -huh. range and with the 70s less pulse I found a source that claimed they they're around 10 pounds which right. is a, a pound heavier a pound is a lot in a guitar but it's not like ridiculous to the point of where you would think that you know the, the, every right. single Les Paul is going to be super heavy. I've played hundreds of them probably in the last since you know since the '80s. I try to pick up and at least play as as many of my, any Les right. Paul that I, '50s <laughs> whatever. And I, I've come across a handful maybe that were like you know oh my god this is a boat anchor yeah like 14 pounds they're out there you know and how many I do not know. But going back to the whole quality thing i don't know where you'd lump that in quality yeah. wise i mean you know the wood heavy is is heavier wood a quality issue it's like we can get this wood cheaper we can make these guitars or was it part of this is more desirable because it right, gives more sustain right. that's one thing that's easy to tell when you're looking for yeah. a guitar pick it up and if it's too heavy for you you know that's not the guitar have for it me. chambered yeah right take it to... well that's what i would rather have <laughs> a guitar on the heavier side than having like a chambered yeah guitar. yeah talking about weight um, as a, or just the quality issues. Let's talk about some of the stuff we've come across in terms of people bad mouthing the Norlin era in terms of uh, multi you know, pancake bodies, right. multiple plies of wood, or, or multiple pieces of maple even on the on the tops and all this stuff. And how, you know, a lot of people kind of claim that that's poor quality when it's really right. not. It's just like you you know you have this material, you're using it to the best of your ability. I've seen and played a lot of 70s Les Pauls and Gibsons, and I, a lot of them have been great guitars. Oh, yeah. And I, I love them. I, like I said, I, I keep referring to this Gold Top Deluxe that my buddy had back in the 70s, and it was it's one of the coolest guitars I've ever played to this day. It's just a, And he had the mini humbuckers and the Deluxe, right? Which, again, people badmouth these mini humbuckers, but um, that's one of the coolest guitars I played, and it sounded amazing. Right. Which is a great guitar. No, and, and isn't that what it's all about? It's, yeah. So the Norland era, things you can actually see and point to and go, look at this. This is shit quality. Yeah. I've noticed a number of, like, some of their lower-end guitars, when they started doing bolt-neck guitars, like Marauders and S1s, right. and, you know, that had, like, really big neck yeah. gaps. I don't know how dialed in they were when <laughs> they started churning out their bolt-ons, but they're some of the, the biggest 
neck pocket issues I've ever seen as far as like, yeah, I can stick a deck of cards <laughs> in, in this thing. So that's something very measurable. You yeah. can go, this quality sucks. Yep. And you can't argue with that. It does. The pancake body, interestingly enough, was pre Norland takeover. Oh. They came they came out with that like a couple years, I think, before oh, okay. or at least a year before Norland kicked in. And people that, still refer to that as, as some kind of shitty thing, right? Right. Well, you know, I could see how it's undesirable. You want nice wood, but the guitars still sound good and totally. play good. I don't have a problem with it. Yeah. I, I don't have a problem with three piece maple necks. It's, you know, it's what does a guitar sound like? How yeah. does it feel? Yeah. I mean Finishes, Gibson has always, in my opinion, been really good with their finishes. Yeah. I love their finishes. They've always used nitro, and it always feels really good. It ages really nice. You know, I'm trying to think of anything else that someone could point to and say, the quality, right. this is bad quality. Even the pickups are cool, like the T-tops from the 70s. Those, Those are great, great pickups, yeah. too. And the mini humbuckers you mentioned, they're not for everybody. They're definitely... Um, they have their own sound, and they're not going to please everybody. But there's absolutely not one quality Thin issue. Then Lizzie, right? Yeah, come on, I mean, fucking Scott Gorman, he liked them, right? <laughs> and they sound great. Yeah. And again, like I, yeah, I just people who you know, I, I read on some of the forums, people, yeah, you know, get a Les Paul Deluxe, and it, the first thing I do is take the mini humbuckers out and throw them in the trash, and then put P90s in it. Okay, that's fine. Well, I, I can see P90s putting P90s. Are great. But yeah, I, me I too. Would but put the, them in the case. Exactly. Put the, the other ones in the Gently case. in the case, not, Gently, not in the garbage can. Yes. In plastic. <laughs> put a rubber band around. Because I'm kind of partial to mini humbuckers. I I I think they sound cool, you know. But um, they do. I've heard them sound really good in like a um, in a. 70s Fender amp with it like crank. They do it. They have a little bit different way that they compress. That's uh, kind of nice. Yeah. They kind of they kind of cry. Yeah. Like they cry. Bluesy cry. <laughs> bluesy cry. No, I've never owned any, but I've played them. I'm such a P90 person. If yeah. I had a deluxe, I yeah. would probably yeah. do the swap. Yeah, there's nothing wrong. Yeah, and P90s are great pickups. But so, I guess Chris and I just think that these eras of guitars get a bad rap, and it. I just don't think it's fair. I think I think more and more as we see comments on forums and things like that, people are starting to come around, or 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 the people that think like us are surfacing, you know, right? Like, or they've always been there, and they're just you right. Know, they're right. More, yeah. There's like a, now like we're a, just a popular Les Paul forum that has a whole Norland subcategory, right. and there's plenty of people out there, so people yeah. get it. There's you know, I will say this about both the CBS era Fender and the Norland era Gibson. I can, like, let's take Fender. Uh -huh. I can find 20 good 70s Strat for every one, like, good... Am I even saying this right? <laughs> no, I'll, I'll, let me make it easier. <laughs> I, I would take a 70s Stratocaster over any American standard Stratocaster made from the mid-80s right. all the way up through the 90s. Yeah. I think finally they started changing things, but even then... Yeah. You know, you have a nine and a quarter or nine and a half, whatever the nine point whatever radius neck. It's a flatter neck. I would take a seven and a quarter I agree. on a Strat over that just because it feels like more yeah. of a Strat to me. Yeah. And I think the quality wise, as long as you get one that, you know, doesn't have a perceived quality issue. Like, look, that neck, I can move the neck. There's a, there's a shitty neck pocket. I mean, it's way easier for me to find guitars I could bond with from that era than yeah. that I think the dark period for Fender was 
just the post-CBS. Setting aside the vintage reissue, which I think is great, that whole vintage reissue, I think with like the American Standard Series, the Strat and the Telly, that I don't like any of those. I agree. I mean, the quality's not bad on them. They like refined them so much that they took the soul out of them, for me, yeah, anyway. I think you're right. They morphed them into something that really isn't a Strat or a Telly anymore. It's like it's this other guitar. It may as well be another model, really. Right. The pickups I mean? in there, I don't like the pickups. Yeah. I hate the bridges. Yeah. Like that Bon Marche. <laughs> Say, like <laughs> those flat, you know, get the, I, I think yeah. Leo Fender got it right, you know. Yeah, I think so too, man. And I, I understand these companies want needing to, I don't know. We talk about Martin. Martin kind of did a good job, I think, of maintaining their integrity over the years and retaining, retaining the integrity of their model catalog, right? right. The model of guitars the classic, they had without, yeah. yeah, without, you know, without trying to create or, or without trying to morph these models into something to please some guy that doesn't like. The characteristics of the guitar he supposedly likes, right? right? It's like, no, and it's interesting because Martin had a dark period that yeah. paralleled those two periods yeah. too. And the what 70s their deal was, was yeah, the, the late sixties and the seventies. Yeah. Their deal was a lot of their templates and whatnot. They they wore. They kind of wore oh, out. right. So, like, their bridges on some of those guitars are off by as much as an oh, eighth that's of an right. inch. And, like, the headstocks, if you look at that era, headstocks, they're a lot more rounded on the edges. Right. It's because their stuff wore out. Interesting. And so I guess the 70s, everybody was really high or something. <laughs> Just like, whatever, dude. There was a, <laughs> we gotta make a, a lot of shitty homegrown yeah. that was, yeah. Totally. And so everybody was having issues. But given even... Given that there are billions, yeah. billions, billions of guitars and billions that you can find from there, and I, my whole point to take away from any of this is, don't write it off, and you know, buy. It sucks. I, I wish people hated them more. Actually, if you think about it, because the prices of these instruments, right, are exactly. Going way well, up. the vintage market, yeah. Pretty soon we're going to be seeing vintage '80s and '90s guitars, like <laughs> totally Ibanez, the vintage Ibanez. Well, there's you already know, a, there's I a know, huge major. You don't know because oh, you just said stop it. Right. <laughs> um, yeah. So, yeah, that's the thing. We're just of that group that thinks, yeah, don't write those ears off. There's plenty of great guitars that were made in that era. And it, like you said, you made a great point, too. It's like it's not like the, they it's not like the manufacturing, the people in manufacturing were all fired and they got new people. Those right. the people that were making the golden era guitars were still in the factories making these making other guitars. guitars. And they were and again, uh, you know, I I really would like to have a guitar made by a human being, you know, shaping, you know, at a station doing this stuff rather than you know, you want to talk about bean counter and all this other crap when you know, it started to become a lot more mechanized and fewer humans were touching the guitars and doing things. So Again, you know, there there are these people who were making these guitars in the golden era of Fender and Gibson and other manufacturers that were still there after the sale, right? After CBS and after Norland. Right. And so they were diligently doing their best to make right and they had to deal with the shit that you know was coming down from on high we got we have to implement this stuff but they were still touching these instruments and that's another good point that you brought up is sure i mean we're in like the golden era now of like you know computer assisted manufacturing where we can use cnc to cut these things the problem with that is you're not getting nearly as much quality one-on-one time with the parts as you do you definitely can see that as you go up like if you know even from the fenders reissue program like you have a nice reissue strat and compare it to like uh you know standard stratocaster or like the made in mexico stratocaster 
and they're good. Like the, even down to the made in Mexico, they're good, and the neck feels good. But as soon as you jump up to the vintage thing, you, you can tell yeah. somebody had their hand on this with a, you know some sort of sandpaper. Exactly. And you get to the custom shop, and it's even more. Uh, and that's what you get. But that, even in these dark eras, you had more of that. I mean, custom shop, one-on-one yeah. type work on these instruments. Yeah. So, As things morphed, exactly. You make a great point that, you know, the guitars, the way they were made, just by virtue of the technology was, that they were made by human beings at a certain station in the factory, right? And, but, but as things became more mechanized, okay, yeah, let's sell our, our regular guitars that are made on the machines, but... We'll, we'll transfer this handmade uh, approach to our custom shop and then charge right. a shit ton of money so that you, you're buying a guitar that was made in the custom shop that really would have been a, a regular guitar off the, fact, off the line in the old days, right? Built by Jack and Susan and whoever's in the... Yeah, those are the names I came up with. Yeah, those, 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 <laughs> Jack and Susan. Those are the ones, their signatures <laughs> their in, signature, in the body cavity yes. is really desirable. It is. You remind me of something. Of course uh, I did. One thing, let's talk about really quickly that era, those the dark eras of both uh-huh. of those companies. And let's talk about like innovation. Yeah, boom. Because I think one thing that's often not seen is... Is there was a lot more, probably more innovation back there than there is now. Now what we do is like, okay, we need to we need to come up with a new model to you know serve some part of the market. Well, we'll just make a Stratocaster, you know, in Sri Lanka or right. wherever right. we can find the cheap labor, and we'll just stamp out this thing that we have. Yeah. When back then you actually had teams of like R and D developing yeah. models. Like take Fender. I love the Fender's Lead series guitars. Yep. yep. And that was actually everything about those, the pickups, the body shape, everything was designed by somebody. And, yeah. they, cre- and they created this, and that was designed to compete with a lot of the Japanese manufacturers who were get, you know, delivering yeah. great guitars for that money. So you had a lot. I think you had more innovation in many ways. Yeah. I mean, they, they did the Bullet series, which was another, yeah. you know, started in the USA and then went to Japan. And those two, they had like their own proprietary pickups. And it was got kind of people working instead of like, we're just going to take... A strat neck and put a um you know and, and put a Telecaster body right. on it and we're going to call it a new model. Yeah. Um, the, the Tele Deluxe that was a you know an innovative thing. We had this I think it was Seth Lover made those pickups and they came up with a really cool model that was kind of like yeah we are doing that where we're taking the Telecaster body and you know a strat neck but we're going to redesign it and you know the electronics and everything and it, they came up with a, a a model that stood the test of time. I totally hear you. That's... And, you know, Gibson did some of the same thing. Some of those yeah. ugly things that I happen to like, like, you know, the Marauder that I mentioned, yep. the S1. I mean, that, those were like, we were making new models. We have Bill Lawrence on board. Yeah. He's going to make some pickups for us and we're going to try these new models. And I could be wrong because I'm not, I don't have my finger on the pulse of modern <laughs> Fender and Gibson, but I don't see a lot of that. Like, Well, I mean, some of the innovation I can recall just from the last five, ten years is are the the robotic tuners put, oh. put on Gibson guitars that seem to have kind of fizzled out. I hope so. Um, and the locking tuners on some guitars. Um, but you and I talk about some luthiers that, like, we've seen that acoustic guitar where the on the top of the guitar, the strings fan out. <laughs> and it's almost like a, like a, a Ronco slice and dicer. Right. It's just silly. Or, or people who think they've cracked the code, right? This luthier 
who thinks he's cracked the code on making the perfect guitar. It's like, well, and then you see the guitar that they've created, and it's like, I, A, yes, it's this weird body style. Good, not, nice try. But, you know, it doesn't rival even, like, like you say, a 70s Strat or a 70s Gibson Les Paul. These guys kind of, they were kind of feeling their way in the early years, which is understandable, but as they got their feet under them and they were building these guitars, they kind of got it right, you know? And, and all these... Modern builders, in our view, is they're trying to replicate what was done by Leo Fender and McCarty and all these guys back in the early days of making these these instruments. And again, I, there's nothing wrong with trying to make things better or or innovate or stuff like that. But many times, it seems like those efforts fail because it's like I, I see this guitar, I play this guitar. We, you and I play all these boutique guitars and boutique amps, and we go, okay, yeah, that's kind of cool, but. Uh, you know, how much better is this than this guitar? Or like you're saying, we, we see the Callings. Callings is a great, they make beautiful guitars, oh, yeah. amazing guitars, yeah. yeah. But as you said, it's like, okay, well, give me a, a Gibson Ju Ju Les Paul Jr. and compare it to the Callings. Or Jr. with their flat say, tops, I do, you know, side by side. I, I love, oh, you know, Callings does great. Yeah, they're the beautiful. Quality, yeah. you know, it's great, but I still like, you know, the, their comparable model to a D18. I, I fault. I fall towards the, the D18. And that's just something else is really worth pointing out, is there's no way of getting around. I mean, guitarists are very traditionalists, and there's a little bit of get-off-my-lawnism with all the shit that <laughs> right. I will acknowledge and right. own. Right. But, you know, you're never going to get around that. Things like robot tuners, I don't see how that... I mean, that's just like... It just doesn't make any fucking sense. That's like part of the guitar that... To learn to play the instrument, you have to learn to interact with yeah. that, and you have to. You can't take that element out of there. Right. You just—it's just like lazy. You can't fucking do that. Yeah. I mean, and you know, you could say, "Well, somebody, I use a million, you know, different tunings, so it's really good for you know, instantly." It's like you know, fuck you. <laughs> I don't. I hope that didn't spike. But, uh, did I say that? I love it. No, I'm oh. saying my. I hope my cackle didn't spike the thing. But oh shit, cackle. Anyway, yeah. No, no, whatever. But my whole point is like we're traditionalists. I will always lean towards the classic American guitars. Yeah. When you're doing a comparison of we mentioned Collins yeah. or anything like that, and that's just that's just point of reference and opinion. Right, it is. And but again, like I, I totally agree with that concept that you know in the early years of manufacturing, you had it done by human beings, and there were. Um, you know, sure, a human being's not going to be as consistent as some frickin' CNC machine that's <laughs> or a plaque machine. <laughs> but, but again, the the attention to detail, the 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 attention to quality, putting stuff out was amazing back then during the golden era, and even like we said, even the, the dark era, era and the in the dark eras of these guitar manufacturers, you had human beings doing this. And and of course, now when you want. A custom shop guitar made or anything else. Guess what they do? They don't. They don't give you this guitar that was made on a machine and shit. They no. give you this guitar that was, you know, really made like the guys in the seventies yeah, in the touched, Nashville factory, yeah, touched by a human being. Right. Exactly. And so that's what you're paying for when you pay ten thousand dollars for a, a Gibson Les Paul a VOS, whatever, blah 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 burst. You know, some guy in a shop is is working away on the shaping the neck and and attention to detail and all that other stuff. So that kind of fascinates me about how things have changed about, you know, and I understand, you know, okay, we, for mass production, we want to, you know, we're going to crank these things through the factory and, you know, use the machines. But it's just ironic now that if, if you want a really beautiful hand, you know, great guitar made, you know, they're, it's going to be made by a human being. 
I think I think that's the point. Or so the dark era, there were still human beings, yeah. and you know it, it warrants repeating. <laughs> Even though the bean counters came in with their calculators and their <laughs> pocket protectors, I hate bean counters. It was still the same people were exactly. making the guitars. Hank it's like, and Susan. You know, it wasn't yeah, Hank and Susan. It was Susan. Hank and Susan, yeah. and it's like, okay, you've just. You, you know, I'm an artist, and now you've kind of bound my hands a little bit by making me, you know, make this pancake guitar. But I'm gonna, I'm gonna make it like I made the old ones. Exactly. And I'm gonna spend my time. I'm with gonna this put guitar. love in there, man. And to just kind of finish up, yeah. when we're talking about the dark eras of these, I'm totally. It's totally great to talk about poor quality. Yeah. But we have to point to measurable things. Exactly. Don't point to preferences as quality. Right? Right. Is that what you're saying? And, yeah. and preferences are okay. Everybody has their own preferences. Totally. You should. When you decide to become a guitar player, you're going to develop preferences. your preferences, yeah. and you're going to figure out what you want, and it's completely valid, and you can tell everybody else to fuck off. <laughs> I, I don't want a three-piece maple neck on these Norland. It, it doesn't speak to me. I think it has to be the classic exactly. mahogany, and you and we're behind you at 100%. Yeah. Yeah. But when you say these three-piece necks are shitty quality... That's what like, we have that, to... That was, designed to save money when you look at the super 400 and whatnot and they have you know five piece necks or whatever it's like it's not it's we're, we're talking we have to look for measurable things exactly that's when we take our guitar and beat you over the head with it like abby hoffman got it in the, at woodstock because that's a preference it's not a quality issue three pieces of maple glued together is not that's gonna that's gonna last lifetimes in terms of quality Right. That's a, that's a not going to fall because like I remember you were talking about uh, Waddy Watchell talking about his his uh, guitar coming apart in his hands. Well, that was a, that was a golden era burst actually. Right. Yeah, and I don't even know what he the details the were. There. That yeah, yeah. I mean, it might have been the humidity where he was or anything else, but that's not even a you know that quality issue wasn't even a Norlin issue. That was a that he had a burst that he that was a a classic burst that was kind of having issues. But anyway, that was a side note. But I love the way you wrapped it up. Preferences versus measurable quality issues. Okay, well, that's what we're that's what we're about. All right, let's get out of here. All right, that was another great episode from Chris and Rick Talk Guitars. We're gonna get out of here. Um, do all the cool things we want you to do. Subscribe to our podcast. Go check us out on social media. And until next time, uh, play the guitar. Sorry,